India is now the world's most populous country after overtaking China this year. And with a population of 1.428 billion people, the South Asian nation is home to nearly a fifth of humanity, greater than the entire population of Europe or Africa or the Americas. India, the next big economic opportunity. The IMF sees India and China accounting for nearly half of all global growth this year. I mean, I hear a lot of talk about maybe India is the next China in, in terms of investment here. Let's not forget, this is one of the bright spots in the global economy right now. For more than a decade, New Zealand has tried to court closer trade ties with India. The Prime Minister John Key and his Indian counterpart Manohan Singh have met overnight in New Delhi to try to fast-track a free trade deal. Rekindling free trade talks with India remains a faint hope for the Prime Minister John Key, despite some encouraging words from his Indian counterpart Mahendra Modi. They are now one of the sort of major countries, if you like, second most populated country in the world, and we don't have a free trade agreement with them. And we've all but thrown in the towel. Well, I think the challenge with India is that they've they've indicated very clearly for a long time that primary the primary sector is off the table for them. So, um, in order to pursue a trade arrangement with India, you'd effectively have to take the primary sector off the table. That's not something that we've been willing to do. But. We have Australia that's already closed an early harvest free trade agreement. We have the UK about to close one. We have the EU about to close one as well. And actually, why is it that, that New Zealand exporters are so much worse off selling wool, wine, lamb to India than what our Australian counterparts are? Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, as Prime Minister Chris Hipkins meets with his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi for the first time in Papua New Guinea, has New Zealand been going about its relationship with India the wrong way? With a determined focus on selling stuff, have we fundamentally misunderstood the realities of doing business with the world's newly crowned most populous nation? Whips that one away and how appropriate that Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson are there for this moment, for this team. It's a story that's akin to David versus Goliath, but Kane Williamson and his team now world test champions. The Black Caps beating India in the final of the World Test Championship in 2021. We'll hear more a bit later in the podcast about how the two countries' love of cricket has helped one New Zealand company break into the Indian market. But first, why is trade such a thorny issue for India? And why can't we land an FTA? As Suze Jessup from the Asia New Zealand Foundation and former Deputy High Commissioner to India explains, to answer that, you have to wind the clock back almost eight decades. India achieved independence just 76 years ago in 1947, after it was sort of asset stripped and impoverished by the British East India Trading Company, which was a commercial entity. And there's a, there's a fantastic podcast series on this by William Dalrymple and Anita Anand called Empire, if anyone is really interested in this. But needless to say, you know, this experience um, has really had a lasting impact on India's trajectory over the last 76 years and is still within living memory of older Indians. And so ha- having been sort of subjugated and losing control of its assets and wealth, India's been really using the last um, seven decades to rebuild itself. And this has included being non-aligned and refusing to get drawn into the orbit of other major powers or conflicts. 
It's been highly protective of, of its market, so to avoid as much as possible being exposed to external market controls and external ownership. And it's really included protecting domestic agriculture, which has been critical to India's welfare. And I think, once again, if you go back through history, at the time of India's independence, around 80% of India's population, which was at the time, I think, around 250-odd million, were left in poverty. Yet at the same time, agriculture was critical for livelihoods and, and lives. So you can see from, from very early on the importance of India's autonomy and self-protection and of agriculture in particular. So when you when you fast-forward to today... India remains, you know, largely of that same view. So it's opening parts of its market when it sees strategic advantage and it's protecting others where it believes its core interests might be vulnerable. And unfortunately for New Zealand, this includes agriculture. And, you know, listeners might rightly say, well, how can a country of New Zealand's size really be threatening to India? And the answer is not really a size question, but rather about the principle and and precedent that it could set. And that if we get an FTA across the line with dairy and agriculture access, everyone else wants it too. Yet if we take ag out of a New Zealand trade deal, things start to look a lot less valuable for New Zealand. So I think it's been put on the back burner because we don't really yet know um, what kind of deal we can get across the line with the trade profile we've got. And, you know, India is definitely not holding its breath for New Zealand. It's being hotly courted by many, many other countries. It's everyone's next big opportunity. So how's Australia pulled it off, becoming the first Western country to sign a free trade agreement with this potential powerhouse? Ian Hall is an India expert and Professor of International Relations at Queensland's Griffith University. We used to be quite estranged. We really didn't take each other particularly seriously and we didn't invest a lot of effort. That all started to change about 10 or 15 years ago. So we stopped then talking about things that supposedly bound us but actually really didn't, which were cricket and the Commonwealth and then curry. Those three things didn't really bring us together all that much. And instead what started to change things was sort of three other C's. One was immigration, so creating new Australian citizens, I suppose. One was China and some shared concerns, both economic and also in the security area about China. And then the other one was seeing commercial opportunities. And of course, we've got some other shared concerns too about the Indian Ocean, with security of that area and fishing and all of those sorts of things. So we've got this kind of quite a broad relationship. And that's meant that We've been able to build a strong diplomatic relationship that advances in some areas, you know, on things like immigration and binding our people-to-people connections together. We've been able to talk about security-related issues, some of them to do with China. And at the same time, then we've been able to kind of build enough goodwill, enough diplomatic capital in order to advance the economic relationship as well. But that wouldn't happen without kind of top-level political commitment on both sides. It's not just about rational economic arguments. It's also about having that top-level political commitment. It's about turning up and visiting India. I mean, the last time a New Zealand Prime Minister was in India was back in 2016 when John Key was Prime Minister. Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta went there this February, and last year her Indian counterpart came here. And, of course, Chris Hipkins is meeting with Modi in Papua New Guinea today. Look, that definitely matters. 
I think since the election that we had here in uh, last year in 2022, we've had, I think, 10 ministers, Australian ministers going to India, wow. uh, about five or so coming in the opposite direction. We've had the prime minister in India. The billboards, the posters, everything with Modi and Albanese. More than just a cricket game this week, it's all about the political rally or leadership of Modi, particularly when Prime Minister Albanese gets brought along for the ride. We've had the Deputy Prime Minister, we've had the Foreign Minister as well. So there is a high level of engagement. Part of that is facilitated just by you know the, the breadth of the bilateral relationship. Part of that also is facilitated by things like the Quad. That's the grouping of India, Australia, Japan and the US. That allows at a lead level, foreign minister level, defence minister level, allows for quite a lot of interaction in that context rather than just in the bilateral context. Australia has pulled off an interim trade deal with India, but it's not been the product of trade negotiations. It's actually been the product of sustained investment over the last 10-odd years. And that, I think, has really started or, or fomented with two key ingredients. And that's, number one, I would say, is trust, and number two, commitment. And on the, the trust factor, both Australia and New Zealand have a legacy of being a bit hot and cold with India which kind of gives the uh, the impression that we're treating it like it's expendable because we haven't had a valuable FTA to anchor it or that's been at stake. So I think we've kind of looked at the relationship as a bit hard and low return to others in Asia. But in India, more so than anywhere else in Asia, relationship matters and Australia really turned its relationship round by making it crystal clear at a leader level and across its cabinet that it saw India not solely as a trade opportunity but as a critical partner in the Indo-Pacific. And it has really sustained this and invested this over successive governments. And it's massively stepped up its defence and security relationship with India which has helped build that trust and strategic alignment. And it's really done its homework and totally reorientated its trade pitch to focus on um, services and investment rather than goods, matching India's own priorities. And these are things that will help India grow too and that offers things that India doesn't have. But unfortunately, dairy is one of the things India does have. Um, In fact, it's the biggest producer in the world. So New Zealand will have to do its own homework. Uh, We will have to look at where our strategic interests overlap. We will have to look at what goods and services we have that we think might be of genuine interest to India. And then we will have to really um, pull our team together and sustain that effort over time. Hi, I'm Jeff Allard. I'm the Executive Director of Quality New Zealand. Uh, We've been in the Indian market for over 10 years. Quality New Zealand is one Kiwi company that has done its homework on the Indian market and found its niche came about actually in a, in a previous role in New Zealand cricket where one of the functions was to travel to India, uh, assess the hotels and the uh, security layouts and negotiate with the uh, Indian cricket board. And uh, what I realised at that point was that there was very little New Zealand product uh, in India. And, it, and that sort of planted the seed uh, whilst I was still on a role at New Zealand cricket. It was, it really just keep eating at me to the point where, you know, I knew that particularly with our cricket contacts, uh, that if we were persistent enough, we could uh, forge a way there for not only ourselves, um, but also for New Zealand businesses to trade with India. How 
do you actually do that work? Do you work with selected New Zealand businesses? Do you sort of hand pick them depending on what niches you might identify in India? The industry side of it started um, with a trip that uh, the ANZ had actually organised to India. And um, on that trip, we met a number of meat companies. We identified early on as part of our due diligence that sheep meat was pretty much the low-hanging fruit for the market, particularly in the five-star and food service sectors. On that trip uh, were the Alliance Group, and we formed a relationship pretty early on, to be fair. The representatives from Alliance at the time um, understood the potential of the market. They understood that it would take time, but they were prepared, along with us, to commit to developing a model uh, and a market that we would ultimately both benefit from. And and to the extent now where um, the Alliance Group are a shareholder in Quality New Zealand, and we've enjoyed a, a very strong relationship, you know, over that time of uh, that tenure of 10 years. So that's getting premium New Zealand lamb into those higher end sort of hotels, restaurants, etc. We have 355 star hotel customers. Um, each of them have approximately three to five restaurants within each of the hotels. So it's significant in that regard. We represent about 80% of all sheep meat going into India. And while whilst that's not a a big number in in terms of the comparisons to China and other markets. It's been really important to have that dominance, if you like. We've also um, exported dairy and seafood to India. Wait, dairy? We're not talking milk and blocks of butter here. This is high-end food service stuff. Think butter pastry sheets. We play in the uh, retail uh, channel and also um, we're just developing an, an e-commerce online channel as well. So there's a lot happening, um, but certainly the food service and five-star hotel chains were strategically very, very important because they come with a lot of status in, in the country. How do you go about establishing those networks in India? Well, I've been talking yeah, to... A, yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. It's a really good question. In fact, uh, you know, when we first went over there, um, we came back with probably three or four pages, why not, to deal uh, in India. That was 10 years ago. Um, you know, I'm proud to say that, you know, as a country, they have just gone forward leaps and bounds. It's incredible the pace at which, you know, they're moving um, significant barriers. And I know an important measure for them is the ease of doing business, um, global ease of doing business. So, yeah, and, and they've made big strides. But for us, we knew that we had to develop a business, a you know, point of difference for one. Um, we needed to control the supply chain, and that meant investing in India through a through our own subsidiary company to complete the uh, importation, to complete the distribution, obviously the, the cold storage, um, and that direct marketing capability to the consumer. So if we controlled all of that, not only were we more efficient than others operating in the market, but actually in terms of food safety, but also um, storytelling and marketing, uh, it was it was the right option to take. Now, that probably took, to be honest, four years um, to develop. It was, a, it was a long grind. Yeah, so what is your setup in New Zealand and over in India? What sort of operations do you have? We try and stay really efficient here in New Zealand. So we have uh, two staff here in, in New Zealand, but we have 25 staff now over in India. That subsidiary company effectively does all of the stock clearance, the distribution and the marketing of product and, of course, the uh, the relationships, which is fundamentally the most important. When you're dealing with a 33% tariff, you have to create efficiencies. And I know a lot of exporters out of New Zealand look at India and go, well, there's no way that we compete. And they're right under the traditional model. By the time you have someone clipping the ticket as an importer and a marketer and a a logistics person, it's just not feasible for the for the price points. So, 
you have to do something different. And that's where, you know, that long-term commitment has, you know, is crucial or has been crucial. Hello, everybody. I'm Stephen Fleming, and welcome to another cooking segment with Quality New Zealand. Last time we were in Mumbai with Chef Sydney. Today we're in beautiful Bangalore at the Ritz-Carlton with Chef Kevin. Nice to see you, Chef. Let's talk about the cricket relationship because this is one of the things I, I find most interesting about your setup in particular. Yeah, it's it's been crucial for us. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, we're incredibly proud that, you know, our ambassadors, Stephen Fleming, Brendan McCullum, Daniel Vittori, um, and also our patrons, Sir Richard Hadley, are actually more than that. They're, they're actually shareholders in the business. And there's a significant difference there. They they wanted to invest in a business that was going to be committed to India long term. All of them had understood the benefits of, of actually the commitment of being in market. The reason why they are so respected in India is, yes, because of their cricket skills uh, and their leadership skills, but it's actually that they wanted to be in India before anybody else. And, and what I've learned is that Indians have very long memories and they really respect people that have made a commitment and have added value really to them um, as a nation in a whole lot of ways, um, but most importantly, just through relationships. And, you know, with, with Stephen, Brendan and, and Daniel, they've all been involved, you know, right at the start with the Indian Premier League. This is the massive T20 cricket tournament that started back in 2008. Which is now the you know, one of the highest valued franchise operations in the world. They were a big part of that early on. So so Indians remember that. And and that's where the value for us has come. So to have them with the relationships, they the networks that they bring, the leadership skills that they have, you know, their just their overall uh, knowledge of India, it's been phenomenal for us. It has certainly opened doors. Uh, and cricket, you know, you'll hear it, but cricket is sort of a, an, another religion in India. Everywhere you go, you will have a cricket conversation. And if you can, uh, then um, it certainly sort of helps you get to the next stage uh, a lot quicker. There wasn't any sort of, I don't know, negative consequences with New Zealand winning the Test Championship. Uh, and you know, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that, was, that last uh, dash yeah, dying moment. Exactly. Yeah, well, you, you sort of got to ride those moments. It can work in your favour at times and it can work against you at others. But uh, I must confess as well, I think New Zealand cricket's done a, a fantastic job at building a relationship with, with cricket. And, and if you see the players, the, the relationship that they have, you know, with the Indian counterparts, it's it means so much. Other countries don't quite have that level of respect. And when you insult, you know, an Indian cricketer on the field, um, you're insulting a nation. So there are moments, yes, it's got to be competitive and everyone understands that, but I think the professionalism of our guys in the last, you know, decade or so has has been outstanding and it le- and it's and it's more consequential than just on the field. You know, their their actions have also helped forge really good views of New Zealand as a nation in many ways. And I think cricket has been the lens to which a lot of Indians have actually experienced New Zealand. And equally probably the other way around. But growing New Zealanders' knowledge of India beyond cricket is crucial. Here's Suze Jessup again. From the grassroots up, uh, New Zealanders' knowledge of South Asia is the lowest in the Asia region. We have tended across all of our Asia relationships to see it as a trade-first type relationship where we've signed an FTA and that's provided both the permission space and the resourcing to develop the relationship further. And it has resulted in critical things like air services arrangement that have meant 
with the, say, the New Zealand-China relationship at its peak, over 30 direct flights per week, I believe, whereas there's not one direct flight between New Zealand and India at the moment. So that trade has really provided the impetus and ministerial permission space, the resources to develop and deepen those key Asia relationships in North Asia. But it's become really clear that not only in terms of the wider ecosystem and the era we're in, where all-encompassing free trade agreements are getting much, much harder to achieve, but also that India is not a country that is ever going to accept a trade-first relationship. It wants to build relationships with countries where it sees trust in the relationship and it sees commitment and that's where you know kudos has to be given to Australia for really turning its relationship around. And across um, Southeast Asia where it might not necessarily be an individual Southeast Asian country level um, an enormous trade relationship but there have been other things that have created pathways to build relations there whether it's through people-to-people channels Uh, regular and affordable flights, little entrepreneurship schemes and other offerings that have connected our our people and our economies. So many more threads in those Southeast Asia um, relationships, whereas, yep, with South Asia, there's only one or two threads and, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that they're the right threads. The COVID-19 restrictions in New Zealand, particularly those border closures, how much reputational damage has that done in terms of the relationship with India? I think for any India followers, the announcement that New Zealand was closing its borders to India. The very high number of cases being identified amongst travellers from India necessitated an urgent restriction on travel from India and we put that in place. Came across very much unceremoniously and very jarring to the relationship even if it might have been warranted on health grounds. But we need to really get much better at managing the relationship so that we're not making those kind of rocky errors. We don't need to behave like that. It's the same in the education space where there's been times where we've talked about Indian students as kind of quote-unquote low value and high value and sort of commodified them. We've had immigration cases that have sometimes flown in the face of foreign policy objectives. So there's no question sometimes New Zealand's handling of the the relationship and signalling of the importance of the relationship has left a little bit to be desired. But it's not to say that we don't certainly in New Delhi have some really talented diplomats working hard for the relationship at an agency-to-agency level, Uh, have people committed to building relations but I don't know that across NZ Inc there's um, the right level of coordination and most critically we really need uh, leader level attention and commitment to drive this relationship so that it's not running hot and cold. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Suze Jessup, Ian Hall and Jeff Allett. Kaki te anō.